Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. We are today 10 years out from the collapse of Lehman Brothers and the beginning of the worst financial meltdown since the Great Depression. The shockwaves of those events are still with us today, and they take many forms, not the least of which has been a loss of faith in the efficiency of markets, the underlying ideas of modern economics, the role of the state in intervening in those markets, and the moral and political consequences of capitalism itself. However, any conversation about these ideas does not begin with the crisis 10 years ago, but probably should begin with the Enlightenment thinkers, and most notably with Adam Smith, considered by many to be the father of modern economics. My guest today, the Honorable Jesse Norman, takes a deep dive into Smith in his new book, Adam Smith, Father of Economics. Jesse Norman is a member of Parliament and is widely regarded as one of the rising stars of the British House of Commons. He holds a Ph.D. in philosophy from University College London, and his 2013 biography of Edmund Burke received overwhelming praise and probably should be read today by every conservative politician in America. It is my pleasure to welcome the Honorable Jesse Norman to the program to talk about Adam Smith, father of economics. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, what a pleasure, and thank you very much indeed for having me on today. It's great to have you. One of the things that is theme that seems to run throughout your book about Adam Smith is this connection that we often forget between markets and what you call moral community. Talk a little about that. Uh, Yes, of course. Uh, It's often thought, uh, Jeff, that uh, uh, Smith uh, is an economist in the modern sense. That is to say, someone who tends to think in terms of mathematical models, um, perfect information, perfect uh, uh, frictionless markets, and and the rest of them. But actually, that isn't uh, Smith's position at all, I think. And uh, one of the reasons for that is because uh, he's not merely a great economist, he's also a great moral philosopher. And so he thinks about markets as um, things that have evolved in human culture and Uh, are uh, mediated by human trust and conventions and practices and all of those things that we naturally see when we trade. You go to the market, buy something in the store, um, but which we tend to forget when we just look at the economist's mathematical model. So he's a very much more interesting, uh, I would say, and uh, diverse in his thinking uh, kind of uh, uh, economist than many you would come across uh, Uh, even today. What is your sense of how Smith would look at the way he is seen today, almost absent this this moral aspect of it and this human aspect of it? Yes, I think that's a very good question. Uh, I think he would, um, I think he would, he would wonder why uh, he'd become so much an object of contention between the different sides of the argument, because uh, on the left, many people are looking for scapegoats for what they see as, uh, see as the evils of capitalism, and they go straight to Smith, and uh, they think that you know he wrote the textbook, and uh, because they are angry about what they see as concerns about inequality, they blame Smith for that, and they think of him as a what's sometimes called a market fundamentalist or an apologist for greed or self-interest and all the rest of it. And actually, that isn't Smith at all. But on the other hand, you get people who are perhaps of a very libertarian stamp, who sees Smith as a, a person who wants to sweep away all uh, regulation, all law, and, um, uh, and just, as it were, um, open things up completely. And, and I think that laissez-faire view is also wrong. So what's really interesting is to think, well, what did Smith actually think? And, 
and, and why does it matter today? And when you do that, what you realize is not just that his thinking is really rich and profound, but there's these lessons for how we think today about economics and about capitalism. And, you know, perhaps we can explore some of that in the rest of the show. Right. And how did Smith's thinking grow out of some of the French and Scottish Enlightenment philosophers? Well, Smith um, is really a, a disciple as well as a friend of the great Scottish philosopher David Hume. And uh, Hume, extraordinary figure, um, not just a brilliant thinker, but a brilliant writer, an incredibly funny and engaging man, and absolutely worth uh, anyone's time to investigate and read about and think about. Um, but Hume took as his philosophical project early in his life the idea of creating a what he calls a science of man. And that's supposed to be a comprehensive account of human thought and human action, uh, but without making any direct reference to uh, the existence of God or any religious premises or other mystical or other sources of potential authority. And so he wants to build it from the bottom up in a very naturalistic and, and scientific way almost. Uh, and Smith takes that on. And, and so in a way, what Smith does with his first book, The Theory of Moral Sentiments, is to try to sketch the landscape of how our moral values, our social norms and values are formed. And again, he does that without appealing to God or any religious or uh, external form of authority. And then he zeroes in on economic activity and uh, trading in markets and uses that to and uses his ideas to 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 give a specific explanation of how that works and there are other works that he never published and ultimately uh, destroyed before his death or had destroyed before his death which would have talked about the arts and culture and jurisprudence and government and the rest of it so it was an amazingly ambitious and interesting uh, take and of course he, he gets some really interesting things from uh, the french uh, as well as from the scottish how would we look at Smith's ideas today in the context of what we've come to talk about as behavioral economics today? Well, in many ways, as you might imagine from someone who is such a student of human behavior and who thought so deeply about how our behavior is formed by our moral judgments and our social norms, um, Smith is in many ways the father of uh, uh, modern behavioral economics, right. and as I think people are beginning to realize, and the, all throughout the Wealth of Nations and other writings, there are examples of what we would consider insights that modern behavioral economics is rediscovering. So the idea that, for example, that people may have what, loss aversion, so that they're, they don't, they're more uh, uh, antipathetic to losing something than they are, as it were, on the other side to gaining it. It, you know, normally in, in, in conventional economics, it's sometimes thought that people have, a, uh, uh, as it were, just as much a desire to have something as they have a desire not to lose it. And actually, that's not true. It turns out when you ask people, they're roughly twice as keen not to lose something they have than they are to gain something they don't have. And Smith understands that. And he also understands um, this kind of enormous prejudice that people have for things that are near to them and not far away, even when you can be sure that, as it were, the faraway thing is, is, is worth the same economically. People still have an irrational preference for the present, and, um, or an economically irrational present, uh, preference for the present. And, and that's a piece of behavioral economics uh, that we're rediscovering. It's in Smith. And it's a framing effect. And um, one very interesting example is, lies at the center of his theory. So um, he thinks of people as competition is coming out of a natural desire that people have to um, uh, do better for themselves, and in particular to emulate and admire the rich and the powerful. And, uh, but he also thinks that's a source of moral 
um, difficulty and um, potentially corruption, because, of course, what it means is that they become very materialistic and very obsessive with social comparison. And so he's, he's thinking socially and economically on both sides of that fascinating divide. And when you look at celebrity politics today, Jeff, you can only think celebrity culture, you can only think how wise in many ways his analysis is. How did his ideas get so misrepresented over time? How did it get so far away from some of these behavioral ideas that we've been talking about? Um, it's, again, that's a great question. I, I think the answer to that is that Smith um, very quickly, I mean, not immediately after his death, but within a, a generation after his death, was the, the, the value and importance of his ideas was starting to be understood. And so to have Smith on your side became a very important token in a political uh, and, and a social argument. Uh, and, and even today, Smith, by far the most influential economist who ever lived. I mean, you can add up Keynes and Marx and Hayek and the rest of them, and they come to a small fraction of the amount of influence in terms of citations and mentions that, that Smith gets. Um, and so when you have the free trade debates in Britain in the 1840s, arguments over the corn laws and whether they should be repealed, um, uh, uh, people are looking for a, for a, a person to represent as it were, free, the, the benefits of free trade, and Smith is right there. And a and hundred years later, you know, as the British Empire has expanded, uh, people are, are, are quoting Smith all over the political spectrum. And that's where I think his, his initial um, uh, great prestige comes from. And then in the modern era, of course, it just becomes terribly useful to use him as a kind of um, sound bite for whatever you happen to agree with or disagree with. Right. In terms of the way he's misrepresented today, it's interesting to look at some of what you write about about him, that he even thought state intervention in markets was sometimes a positive force. Yes, no, that's absolutely right. I mean, uh, uh, so uh, I'll take an example. In, in the early 1770s, Smith uh, uh, watched while a um, very fast-growing Scottish bank went spectacularly bust, the Air Bank, and uh, it took with it a lot of the uh, uh, wealth of his great patron, the Duke of Buccleuch, and so the Duke spent the next... 10 or 15 years trying to recover his fortunes, and Smith was helping him. But um, it also taught him about how financial markets, if they're not appropriately regulated and controlled, can uh, explode and destroy an enormous amount of value. And he says, um, uh, he, he analogizes them to, uh, um, as it were, a, a fire. And he says, you know, when, when the fire's uh, starting to turn into a general conflagration, you need party walls separating out the buildings in order to protect them. And in the same way, um, he wasn't shy about uh, um, um, some forms of, of financial regulation. Now, what he doesn't want to do is to, is to suffocate markets. And, and in the 18th century, markets by and large were thickets of regulation from the state, from, uh, uh, from the church, and from guilds and other, as it were, um, professional or trade organizations. Uh, when you get rid of a lot of, a lot of that stuff, um, um, welfare goes up and, and income and prosperity go up. So, so t t t liberalism, um, liberalizing markets was a powerful and almost radical doctrine at the time. Now, when we have much freer markets, you can take a more nuanced view about the cases in which and sometimes it may make sense to um, have a little state intervention in order to make the market work better, in order to make it more competitive than it might be. And that's what antitrust is. I mean, antitrust law is a, an attempt to, as it were, get some competition back into a market which may have become dominated by one or more organizations. And this idea of trust was very 
important beyond the moral community idea that we talked about before. He talks constantly about this idea of trust and consent. Yes. Yes, that's absolutely right. Um, I mean, it's a Humean idea originally that, that all of social life rests on consent. You know, people, people aren't governed generally by force. Um, they're governed because they, they, they consent to be governed, and um, uh, uh, that provides a wider backdrop. Um, but Smith is uh, very, very interested in trust, as you say. And, of course, what's fascinating to him I- I- I now to look back on it, to see how these things are, um, in many ways, a substitute for state action. I mean, if people trust that others will keep an area clean and they won't litter it and they won't graffiti it, it doesn't become less necessary to have laws against graffiti and litter. Moral community and those norms have replaced the needs to have um, explicit rules and uh, enforcement, all of which are expensive. So, in a way, it's, uh, it's, as we start to get cleverer about signaling trust and building trust in uh, virtual communities and hopefully maintaining it, or it can also get destroyed, um, it would be nice to think some of these Smithian lessons can be, can be relearned because they are at the center of what a, a culture is. Um, trust varies between one state and one nation or another, and the high-trust countries and nations tend to do better than the low-trust ones. How did he see that with respect to political economy, the politics of it all that that kind of provided a framework for the economic foundation? Yes. Uh, So so Smith, the idea of the word economics isn't really coined until the end of the 19th century, about 100 years after Smith's death. Uh, And what Smith has is this phrase political economy. And in many ways, it's a much better term because economics is an attempt like mathematics or physics, to turn political economy into a, into a quasi-science, when it really isn't a science. And um, Smith um, uh, is acutely aware both of the ways in which it is potentially scientific and the ways in which it falls short, ultimately, of the hard sciences. So what's really interesting is that he's always tying it to uh, the, the politics of a country. And you, the, the linkage is through property. Um, because, of course, markets are, are constantly trading in property. That means you have to have well-defined property rights. Well, who defines the property rights? Answer, the state. And those property rights can change and change quite radically. And so you have the extraordinary phenomenon of people trading in, in property whose status is evolving over time. And that requires itself consent and trust. But it does tie the state into even the very definition of what we would consider market or capitalist activity. And it's that reflection, that understanding, um, that the state of property is dependent on the form of government that underlies that. When you take a more political economic viewpoint of markets, then, of course, it, again, it takes you away from that idea that markets are sterile mathematical models merely in kind of in boxes. And it requires you to think about not just, for example, whether globalization lifts um, economic outcomes, but whether it targets or harms specific people or sets of people. And so you have to ask questions about outcomes more and distributional consequences, because those are inevitably ones which will have a political uh, uh, feedback loop uh, into your society. And what did he mean then when he talked about an invisible hand? So the invisible hand um, is, a, is a phrase that's only used once in the wealth of nations, um, and it's become incredibly popular because it's right. a brilliant phrase. And it is key to, to Smith's thinking, because um, uh, uh, what it refers to, as we interpret it, is this idea that you can get 
um, uh, market outcomes which no one intended when they started to trade and which are generally beneficial. So it's that famous story about after the, uh, the, the war comes down in uh, Eastern Europe and someone from Russia goes to New York and says, well, I noticed that the food markets work very well. Tell me, who is the commissar in charge of bread? And <laughs> New York says, well, we don't have any commissars in charge of bread. We just have people who make bread and people who sell. And the system um, creates this amazing, miraculous aggregate outcomes that it doesn't cost very much. And it's um, very widely available in an astonishing range of uh, um, different types. And um, so that's, uh, that's a kind of example of um, uh, uh, what happens when um, the benefits of the invisible hand um, are misunderstood. And it also explains and shows how um, and it's an argument made by Hayek later, but it's an argument that Smith anticipates, which is that, which is that no um, governing per, uh, person or state could ever replicate the infinite variety and flexibility and dynamism of a, of a functioning market economy. How would he have viewed global markets today and the diversity that's inherent in those markets? I think he would have been um, dazzled and amazed by how markets have grown and uh, he would be, I think, delighted by the effect that they've had. I mean, the effect of, you know, um, the globalization and in particular the mobile telephone and other related technologies has been to lift the incomes of the least well-off countries in, in the world faster than at any point in history. And um, I mean, much faster than any point in history. It's been astonishing. And of course, China and Chinese enrichment is an important part of that. Um, so I think Smith would be delighted and amazed by that and pleased by that equalizing effect. I think he'd be worried about some of the aspects of it. I mean, for example, one of the things that you do see increasingly is that um, the very brightest and most energetic people in particular countries tend to get, you know, naturally, as they did found America and the um, the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries, they tend to go where the opportunity is. And that's fine and dandy, but it does mean that there's greater inequality between states because many of those states are unable to succeed uh, because of the talent drain that comes out of them. So um, that's not, as it were, the end of the story by any means, but it's the kind of phenomenon which Smith, who has a, who has a view of natural liberty, which is a very e egalitarian one, would, would worry about. Never get in the Smith system, um, you can't pass... Um, uh, 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 as it were, your property down to your firstborn. There's no primogeniture. Um, and markets are competitive, so you can't build up great surpluses in markets. And, you know, there's a potential for significant taxation. And he thinks that um, workers' uh, rights should be, um, you know, given uh, a proper airing as well, or claims, are, uh, you know, the, the, when the masters try to gang up on the workers, the workers should be given some support. So between those different things, you're looking at a Smithian economy, which is high wage, highly competitive, and um, in which great uh, diversities of inequality can't really occur. And that's a very different world from some of the ones we're seeing uh, today in any country or indeed globally. He was also very sensitive to this insider-outsider idea and this concern about insiders ripping off the outsiders. Yes, that's absolutely right. Remember, there's that famous line where he says, you know, when... Um, uh, when people are gathered together, the you know, masters are gathered together, essentially, um, you know, the, the conversation doesn't go on very long before it turns to um, how to raise prices and roof off the public. And, of course, that's a, that's a phenomenon we see a lot. Um, I think it's possible to pull out of um, Smith's writings a very coherent and uh, modern 
idea of um, what you might a critique of crony capitalism. And that absolutely pivots on the distinction between insiders and outsiders on asymmetries of power and information. The insiders have all the power and the information. The outsiders don't. That's very useful when you look at the platforms and some of the technology um, uh, uh, wall gardens for some of these social media uh, organizations. Um, but you also, the idea that uh, the principal agent problem, basically, you know, we, we uh, choose these people to work for us in our companies and then they start enriching themselves and paying the chief executive and his or her cronies um, a lot. That's in Smith. And, and of course, the idea that of rent extraction, um, that is to say, people leveraging their power um, and relationships with government to secure an above market return in a return they're not entitled to competitively. That's in Smith, too. And, and those things are three big, big problems at the moment. And we see some of that in the UK. We see a lot of it in the US. And we see it around the world as well. So I think Smith, to that extent, is a very contemporary thinker indeed. And he would have been fascinated, I would suspect, by the sort of democratizing aspects of technology within markets. Yes, he, that's absolutely right. He certainly would have done. And um, you know, the idea is sometimes forgotten by the younger generation today that, um, you know, these are things they hold in their hands called mobile phones, um, you know, didn't exist f- uh, forever. And indeed, it's an astonishing series of developments that have put that kind of power and opportunity in their hands. And Smith is not a person who um, really, one of the criticisms of Smith is he doesn't really think about um, technology particularly, although there was technology starting to really gain speed. He was a friend of James Watt who perfected the steam engine, for example. Um, and um, he doesn't really think about technology very deeply, and he doesn't think about industrialization very, very deeply. And, and the contrast there is with Alexander Hamilton, who thinks, you know, takes the wealth of nations, but then puts his own amazingly fertile and imaginative mind to it when he thinks about his report on manufacturers um, and, and kind of anticipates not just an industrial economy in America when one didn't really exist, but also how that's going to be financed and what its relationship is going to have to be to the state. And that, again, is an astonishing intellectual achievement that we sometimes, uh, sometimes forget. So Smith doesn't really um, have those aspects of what we would think of as the full picture, but he certainly would be um, very interested in the power that has been placed in the consumer's hands by uh, technology and by, uh, and by change and evolution in markets. And with respect to the state, how does he view taxation, and what were his concerns in that regard? Well, he lays down um, the, the great rules that we abide by in taxation now, and you know that they, it should be clear what is being taxed, and it should be inexpensive to pay the ta- you know to, uh, the cost of the tax over and above the amount it actually raises. It shouldn't be inefficient, um, uh, and and all of the other things that modern tax policy relies on. Um, his, his view is that taxes, um, I mean, I don't think he likes taxes particularly any much more than the rest of us, but he recognizes that even in um, uh, 18th century Britain, uh, taxation uh, was used to fund um, uh, overwhelmingly defense. And um, he thinks the Navigation Acts, a big state intervention, are required to protect uh, British merchant shipping and for security purposes. And so he's prepared to tolerate taxation. And, and his system, as a body of ideas, potentially allows for quite onerous taxation. For example, he, he is positive on the idea of a land tax. That would be a very radical uh, move uh, in, in you know, Britain or America or, or most uh, of any modern economies today. He was concerned, though, about bureaucracy and about government growing too large and the stifling potential stifling impact of that yes i think i think 
less um, with bureaucracy, which wasn't really a phenomenon in British government at the time. It was incredibly small. So I, think, I don't think he's so much focused on bureaucracy, but absolutely focused on government, the danger of government um, getting too big for its boots as we'd say in Britain, um, you know, racking up a lot of debt. He doesn't like warfare because it interrupts commerce and it raises a lot of debt. And debt is a charge on future generations that, are f- that, a, that a current generation levies, which doesn't have to pay itself. Um, and, and he very much dislikes it when government gets too close to business. And the classic example there in his own era was, of course, the East India Company, um, which was, you know, uh, the, uh, running... Um, the, a large chunk of the first British Empire in India, and was acting as a mini-state in its own right. I mean, it was levying taxes, and it was um, uh, gathering and um, managing uh, markets, and it was uh, it had its own um, private army. And um, so, it's uh, it, it's that very um, ambiguous and uh, potentially corrupting relationship between the multinational business, business generally, but multinational business in that case, and the state that he thinks is potentially highly, highly corrupting and, and, and needs to be counteracted by vigorously functioning markets. And finally, in, in our modern economy today, particularly as we are today looking back at, at what happened 10 years ago, what do you think is the primary thing that we should take away from Smith that has value in understanding the economy today? Um, If I may, Jeff, I'm going to give you two things um, rather than one. Um, The first is that Smith doesn't have a one-size-fits-all theory of markets. And when we do, when we step away from that view, we can can analyze markets individually in their own terms. And that, I think, is much more productive. So um, there's a big difference between uh, what one might call ha- haircuts and hamburger markets, where you, you know you buy a hamburger, you eat it, and then you know the following week you might buy another hamburger and you eat that, and you pay a price that's uh, set in the market, and that's it. Um, big difference between that kind of market and asset markets like stocks and bonds and foreign exchange and the rest of them, property, where the uh, the entity doesn't disappear, and you can be either buying or selling, and. It's only when you realize those kinds of distinctions, and one can get much more detailed in the different kinds of distinctions, that you realize that actually to think of one in terms of the other is a terrible mistake because asset markets massively are prone to overshooting and to um, uh, ultimately, therefore, to the economics of boom and bust. That's the first thing I think Smith gives you, the requirement to think through what is actually happening in a market, how does it work, and what are its potentially negative economic, social, political consequences. Uh, and the other thing I think is really important is this focus on norms. And just the little example I would give is changes in CEO pay. So, um, you know, in, in your lifetime, uh, I'm sure, Jeff, and certainly in mine, I, I can remember that in the 1960s and 70s, you know, corporate America got paid well. But there was not a sense that, uh, you know, that the chief executives of corporate America were earning egregiously more than the right. average uh, uh, wage in their company. And I think they would have been embarrassed and they would have felt held back by the golf club and social values and all that stuff from doing so. Um, now that's absolutely not the case. As CEO can earn many hundreds of times the uh, value of the average wage in the firm. And that norm about what is appropriate pay has changed. Now, that's completely unrelated to any improvement in stock market performance or profitability or any objective measure of achievement. That's just because the norm has changed. And it's changed in my country too. It's changed in Britain as well. In Britain, um, 
you know, and of course, there's always a ratifying story about the global competition for CEO pay um, and CEOs, but of course, they tend to get promoted from inside the firm, so that argument doesn't really work. Um, but again, um, um, pay has gone up enormously and for no very evident reason and completely unrelated to performance. And so I think thinking about norms, what are the values we want to have and what do we have, what are values we want to have in our corporate and business culture? That's really important. We think about the, what happened in 2008 and, the, you know, it's not absolutely clear to me that the norms... Um, about pay and about risk and about bonus culture and the rest have changed anything like as much as they should have done. And, and you know, I spent uh, two years working on Wall Street and several years working in the city of London uh, in the days when um, before these changes had taken place. So I've got a little bit of experience of, 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 of what I am speaking about. The Right Honorable Jesse Norman. His book is Adam Smith, Father of Economics, just out from Basic Books. I thank you so much for spending time with us today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much indeed, Jeff. Thank you.